But though we thus contend that infants are not included in membership of the visible church as children of church members and have not a right to the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper to eat in the exercises of church discipline as such, yet we also argue that they are placed under guardianship of the church, that they have a particular claim to their prayers, attention, and care, and that they are especially entitled to those ordinances which are designed to be the means of conversion. Welcome to Christ Overall, a podcast dedicated to helping the church see Christ as Lord and everything else under his feet. My name is David Schrock, and today I'm introducing Richard Furman's answer to this question. How do the children of church members relate to the church? In January, as I was beginning to prepare for this month's theme, Cultivating and Keeping the Christian Home, I ran into Tom Nettles, the esteemed Baptist historian, and I asked him for recommendations from Baptist history on the subject of the Christian home. In that conversation, he pointed me to Richard Furman in his eminently helpful treatise on Baptist church members and their children. In what follows, we will hear a biographical sketch of Richard Furman, a particular Baptist from the 18th and 19th century. And in that short biography, we will learn something of his ministry with a specific focus on his counsel for raising children in the Lord. After that introduction by Dr. Nettles, we will hear an updated version of Richard Furman's wise counsel for parents raising their children in the Lord according to the Baptist faith. Indeed, this was the subject of the long form earlier this month, an essay that you can listen to on our previous podcast. And this approach to raising children in the Lord who are not yet in the covenant of grace will also be a theme that we address in upcoming podcasts related to the age of children in baptism, that is, believer's baptism, and a discussion with Tom Nettles about raising children from a specifically Reformed Baptist position. Those are the theological issues that we are addressing this month. But we are also offering a variety of essays that focus on family worship, the place of technology in the home, and the way that the New Covenant informs our thinking about singleness. Those articles and more are all forthcoming. And in all, they provide theological wisdom and practical counsel to help you cultivate and to keep your home in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. To that end, I would encourage you to check out these resources at ChristOverall.com and to share them with others. Additionally, if you have not signed up for our monthly newsletter, you can do that at our website. And you'll definitely want to do that in time to receive our new weekly update, which will link to the articles that we are publishing. Last of all, if you're finding the content at Christ Overall helpful, we would ask that you consider giving to the work. You can make a donation at ChristOverall.com give, and that will go to supporting podcasts like this one and funding upcoming projects. Indeed, we at Christ Overall are grateful to God for all the listeners who have expressed their interest and encouragement in the work that we are doing here. And we pray that these evergreen resources may continue to build up your faith and to serve Christ's church. And to that end, I introduce to you Richard Furman's essay on the children of church members and Tom Nettles' brief introduction to Richard Furman and his ministry. A short introduction to Richard Furman by Tom J. Nettles, read by Kevin McClure. Richard Furman was born to Wood and Rachel Furman on October 9th, 1755 in Esopus, New York. During his childhood, his family moved south, eventually settling in South Carolina. At that time, revival of the separate Baptist variety had just begun, 
and Furman at 15 years of age felt strongly convicted to examine the doctrines of Christianity for himself. This issued in deep conviction. He was overwhelmed by a true sense of guilt. Eventually, he came to Christ as a sinner, dependent on the free grace of the gospel. Upon requesting believer's baptism, he was questioned thoroughly by Joseph Reese. Furman's mother, upon hearing her son's statement of faith in Christ, also was converted and was baptized with her son by Reese. After a period of self-imposed isolation to study the scriptures, Furman began witnessing to family, friends, and servants. Also, he became what's called an exhorter, which is an evangelistic role where the young Furman would call the congregation to take seriously the message of a visiting minister. In May 1774, after having preached for two years at the High Hills Church and engaged in extensive itinerant evangelistic work, he was ordained to the gospel ministry and became pastor of the church. Though only 19 years old, his zeal for preaching not only gave him an effective popularity at High Hills, but also thrust him throughout South Carolina and into Virginia for evangelistic preaching. His zealous activity in support of the Patriot cause earned a bounty on his head from General Cornwallis. In 1787, Furman accepted a call to First Baptist Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Furman's influence expanded greatly from this time until his death in 1825. David Benedict records, quote, I do not know of anyone in the Baptist ranks at that time who had a higher reputation among the American Baptists for wisdom and counsel and a skill in management in all the affairs of the denomination, end quote. Furman served as moderator over the Charleston Association for more than 25 years. His constant insistence on ministerial education led the association to form a general committee, of which Furman was president for 34 years. His reasoning on this issue was published in a circular letter for the Charleston Association called, On the Duty of Churches to Provide for the Instruction and Improvement of Persons Called by Them to the Ministry Previous to Their Entering on the Work. When the Baptist Convention of South Carolina was formed in 1821, the first state convention in Baptist life, Furman was its chief instigator. He served as its president for four years. In 1814, he was unanimously elected first president of the Triennial Convention and was re-elected in 1817. Throughout his ministry, Furman proved to be a true pastor-theologian. His commitment to confessional evangelical truth and Baptist ecclesiology was clear and profound. Furman's ecclesiology was set forth most cogently in his sermon called The Constitution and Order of the Christian Church. He described the glory of the universal church, but he focused on the visible church. The visible church should be composed only of visible saints. Baptism, therefore, pertained only to those professing and giving substantial evidence of conversion. Infants must be excluded from baptism, although those who die in infancy, so Furman believed, are saved, quote-unquote, in a sovereign, gracious manner. The officers of the church are pastors and deacons. Apostles, prophets, and evangelists served specific historical functions in the apostolic age, but their calling and divine credentials have ceased 
without secession. A pastor must be qualified in both teaching and governing, having a sense of duty and call to gospel ministry, and must, quote, be truly acquainted with experimental religion and deeply affected with its reality and importance, end quote. Having engaged in polemical contests with Anglicans, Furman insisted that churches are not national bodies and that they have no authority over the consciences of the general population. They are congregational, having within themselves the power of admitting persons to membership and office. Among the functions of the church are corporate worship, pure administration of the ordinances, and the duty of church discipline to preserve both the unity and purity of the church. From within a lifetime of pastoral labors and ecclesiological writings, therefore, Richard Furman engaged the subject of church members and their children. Specifically, the piece that follows originated as a circular letter written for the Charleston Association in 1792. Its original title, quote, On the relation the children of church members bear to the church and the duties arising from that relation, end quote, reveals the question at hand. Though Baptist churches do not baptize the infants born to members, nor consider them as children of the covenant, for the new covenant rests on regeneration, they nevertheless recognize a special obligation to the children of church members. In his essay, the first part gives reasons that Baptists do not baptize their infants. It provides a clear exegetical and doctrinal rationale for the Baptist rejection of infant baptism and practice of believer's baptism only. Then, the second part discusses the sober obligations that rest on the church and the parents in rearing children to a quote-unquote diligent use of the means of grace. The discussion contains biblical counsel for marriage, for child-rearing, for education, for doctrinal instruction of children, and for inculcation of a deep sense of the claims of truth and duty. In all, Furman's treatise repays the reader handsomely. And so, in this day when some Baptists are looking to other traditions to find help for their homes, I commend Furman's Baptist vision for raising children in the home and in the church. The Children of Church Members by Richard Furman, originally presented as a circular letter to the Charleston Association in 1792. The ministers and messengers of the several Baptist churches united in the Charleston Association met at Coosahatchee the 3rd of November and continued to the 7th of November, 1792, to the churches they represent, send Christian salutation. Beloved Brethren, Conformably to resolve of the last year in 1791, we are now to address you on an interesting and delicate subject an inquiry into the relation in which the children of church members stand to the church, and the most advisable method to be pursued respecting them for their own spiritual benefit and the general interests of Christian religion. This subject naturally divides itself into two parts. We shall consider them separate in the order in which they stand in the inquiry. The question respecting infant church membership has long been a matter of controversy between the Baptist churches and their brethren who practice the baptism of infants and will no doubt always be considered as a leading point in those disputes respecting baptism. 
And perhaps, while the advocates of infant baptism have gone too far in asserting the right of membership, our churches, or the advocates for our principles, have sometimes overlooked their true relation and has been too inattentive to the duties consequent thereon. It may be difficult to find a term every way suitable to express this relation of parents and churches to unbelieving children, but we think it is of the nature of wardship, W-A-R-D-S-H-I-P, so that the subject may appear in as clear a light as we are capable of placing it, we wish you to consider the following things. First, we wish you to consider that a right to regular membership in a Christian church is founded by divine appointment in a spiritual state and character, which are only attainable through grace and presuppose the depravity and guilt of human nature, all being by nature children of wrath, and even those who have received the grace of God themselves found unable to communicate it to their offspring, which last is not only proved by the general tenor of holy writ, and especially in the words of Christ in John 3, 6, namely, quote, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, end quote, and of St. John in John 1, 12 through 13, quote, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, who were born not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, end quote, but is frequently evinced to our observation in the children of truly pious parents who proved notoriously wicked and finally impenitent notwithstanding all the care of education and the solicitude of their parents to impress them with a just sense of religion. Second, without gracious qualifications, a person is unfit for the holy duties and exercises of the church, which consist chiefly in faith, love, and obedience. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The carnal man discerneth not the things of the Spirit. And Romans 8, 7 says, the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God. And the soul that is not influenced by love and zeal as abiding principles will not be concerned for the honor of God and the interests of his kingdom. Third, we wish you to consider that the scriptures expressly require evangelical knowledge, repentance, and faith with a profession of the same of those who come to baptism and the Lord's Supper, which are the public sacraments of the gospel, whereby persons are received and confirmed in the visible membership of the church, the three first being necessary in order to our obtaining acceptance before God, and the latter for the honor of his cause in the world and for the satisfaction and fellowship of his people. Should it be objected by those who baptize infants that infants certainly have been considered under the former dispensation as members of the church by God's own appointment, and that they have partook of the sealing ordinances of that dispensation, and that as the covenant made with Abraham was the covenant of grace, the same that we are under, therefore the same privilege must be continued to children now. To those who object that, we answer, Admitting the dispensation to Abraham was the covenant of grace, it could be so only in a qualified sense, 
and was but an imperfect dispensation of that covenant and had many and various things included in it which did not belong to it, strictly considered. So of which were by inspired writers of after ages declared to be statutes that were not good and carnal ordinances. And God himself is represented as finding fault with them, which are given as reasons for a new and better dispensation. Whatever is essential to the covenant of grace remains the same invariably from age to age and may be expected in every dispensation of it. But what God has been pleased at any time to add of a positive nature, and especially of what is declared to be imperfect, may be left out in any new dispensation. In this respect, one dispensation can be no rule or standard for another. Hence, we may see the futility of the argument drawn from Abraham's covenant and circumcision in favor of infant church membership and infant baptism. For if we grant the covenant made with Abraham was the covenant of grace, it must also be granted by our opponents that it was an imperfect dispensation of that covenant, namely the new covenant, to which the gospel has succeeded. And if we should also grant that baptism as an ordinance has come in the room of circumcision, neither of which have been ordinarily granted, yet it must follow that they are come into the room of the former as to supersede, not to copy after them, as the day succeeds the night, or perhaps more aptly, as the triumphant will succeed the military state of the church. The glorious dispensation of the gospel has for its archetype or pattern not the imperfect dispensation to Abraham and the Jewish church, but the covenant itself as made with Christ, the new covenant, which is now more fully revealed and enjoyed in a church state and with ordinances much better adapted to its spiritual nature and original grand design. That many children of church members, even the most pious, are not in the covenant of grace strictly considered, must be granted by all who hold that an interest in that covenant will produce as its proper effect the conversion and salvation of the soul. And it is apparent that what have been frequently called sealing ordinances are not essential to the covenant since there was a time when it was revealed to men without them. Positive institutions, therefore, are to be considered absolutely dependent on the will of God, as revealed in every dispensation to which they are annexed, whether they respect subjects, manner of administration, or any other circumstance. But what appears to us to put the matter beyond dispute is the account given of the new covenant by a prophet, recognized by an apostle, and applied in positive terms to the gospel dispensation. It is plain from that account, which you may see at large in the eighth chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews, that the old and new covenant mean the former and present dispensations, which according to the hypothesis we have laid down, are dispensations of the same covenant, to wit, the covenant of grace, the one being dark, shadowy, 
united with carnal ordinances and administered in general to carnal subjects is represented as become old and passing away. The other, namely the new covenant, declared to be not like the former and established in the gospel church is particularly distinguished in this, that it should be made with spiritual subjects and that the evidence of their interest in and right to this covenant should be not the sign of circumcision in the flesh, but the law of God put and written in their hearts. To these, God is a covenant God, and they are his covenant people. Some have supposed that transactions at Sinai are referred to under the description of the Old Covenant from the reference in Hebrews 8 to Israel being brought out of Egypt, and they maintain that the Old Covenant does not affect the covenant made with Abraham. But it should be remembered that all God's dealings with and communications to the nation of Israel until the coming of Christ were in continuation and confirmation of the dispensation given to Abraham. Furthermore, the words under consideration in Hebrews 8 apply with more force to transactions before Israel's emancipation from Egyptian bondage than to those following. For they speak of making or beginning a covenant when God took them by the hand, which is a covenanting act, to effect this deliverance for them, which is very expressive of his foretelling to Abraham the bondage of his posterity in Egypt and is promising to deliver them out of it at the very time the covenant with him was made, as recorded in the 15th chapter of Genesis. The covenant made with Abraham and his natural seed, with the ordinances annexed to it, were well calculated to serve as an introduction to the gospel dispensation, and the sign or seal of circumcision was very properly administered to his children and all who pertained to him, while it was the design of God to distinguish them as a nation from the rest of mankind, who were to be under the special care of Jehovah, of whom more immediately Christ was to come, and among whom he was to perform his personal ministry on earth. And considering Abraham and his posterity as typical of Christ and his gospel church, that is, as a type of Christ and his gospel church, we shall have no objection in this point of view to admit that baptism has come in the room of circumcision with respect to the subjects. For as circumcision was to be administered to all Abraham's children throughout their generations as such, so baptism is to be administered to all the seed of Christ, which are believers. And the subjects of the ordinance must appear such believers by profession, as the administration is performed by imperfect men are not knowing, certainly, who are true believers, and the admission of adults into the church who are found eventually to be unholy or unbelievers, forms no sufficient objection against this scheme, since God has not determined to prevent all evil in the present state of things, and has preserved the knowledge of the heart to himself exclusively. It is sufficient that he has shown his displeasure at anyone's coming to his sacred gospel feast without a wedding garment, and everywhere required that faith, repentance, and evangelical knowledge should precede a person's admission to the sealing ordinances of the gospel church, of which description is baptism as much as the Lord's Supper. If a church, 
not paying proper regard to this rule, admits such persons to those holy ordinances without demanding proper evidence in their profession and conduct, it becomes culpable. But where this care is taken, the presumer alone, that is, the unconverted person who chooses to become baptized, is answerable to God for his intrusion. That what we have stated above respecting the new covenant is just appears by farther considering that the writing of God's law in the hearts of men, or in other words, regeneration and the blessings of salvation afforded at the introduction of the gospel, that these writings of God's law were not new things to the subjects of grace, but were made sure by Christ's engagements for his redeemed in every age of the world and were received and richly enjoyed by antediluvian pre-flood saints, patriarchs, prophets. But in the dispensation to Abraham, these gifts of regeneration and salvation were not made the term of being in covenant or of admission of membership in the national and in many respects carnal church that was then established. But in the new covenant, in contradistinction to the old, regeneration is required. This accounts for John's address to the scribes and Pharisees when they are coming to his baptism, and he tells them in Matthew 3, 9, Think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham our father. For God is able of these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Bring forth, therefore, fruits, meat for repentance. The KJV. That regeneration is required also accounts for the constant requisition of repentance and faith, or their equivalent, in admission to that ordinance throughout the New Testament, and of examination and knowledge of the nature and significancy of the ordinance in an approach to the Lord's table. With reference to this, no doubt, Jesus made and baptized disciples, commanded his apostles to teach and baptize, and informed his church that no man could be his disciple without taking up his cross daily and following him. And except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. This view of things furnishes a satisfactory and complete answer to the inquiry often asked with an air of triumph. Quote, unquote, if children of believers were once admitted into the church as such, when were they excluded? Even then, when the covenant which admitted them was made old and passed away, and the new covenant established on better promises, made with believers, exhibiting a more just view of things, and unfolding a more full and glorious discovery of the grace of God took place. That's when. But though we thus contend that infants are not included in membership of the visible church, as children of church members, and have not a right to the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper to eat in the exercises of church discipline as such, yet we also argue that they are placed under guardianship of the church, that they have a particular claim to their prayers, attention, and care, and that they are especially entitled to those ordinances which are designed to be the means of conversion. On the other hand, they, that is these children who are unbelieving, 
In consequence of this relation, owe a duty and respect to the church which bind them to attend its worship, regard its admonitions and advice, and when they become properly acquainted with religion, understanding its doctrines and precepts, and feeling its sacred influence on their hearts, to unite in its membership and use their best endeavors to promote its interests. These sentiments, we think, are fairly inducted from the following positions. The church as a holy society or organized body for answering its grand design of promoting the glory of God and the interests of his kingdom appears to be principally appointed for two purposes. First, the preserving of a holy union and fellowship among the subjects of grace, their preservation, comfort, and improvement, while they are continued in the state of trial and ripening for the blessedness of heaven. And secondly, the church is principally appointed for the conversion of those who are yet in a state of nature, that is a state of unbelief, and the assistance of such persons as become concerned about their eternal interests and inquire what they should do to be saved. The ordinances of the gospel committed to their charge are accordingly adapted to these purposes. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, and the exercise of church discipline, or governing power in the church, are only proper to those who are subjects of grace, or strictly members. But prayer, singing the praises of God, preaching the gospel, reading and hearing the scriptures, and such, though of use and necessary to the renewed and sanctified, are also designed for the benefit of others and useful as means of conversion. And though they are to be made use of with respect to all, as far as they can be prevailed on to attend them, yet it is more immediately the duty of the church to pay attention therein to those who voluntarily associate with them for the important purposes of the gospel, or are placed by divine appointment or in the course of providence under their immediate care. The primitive church seems to have viewed things in this light and pursued a correspondent line of conduct with respect to those who were considered as catechumens or penitents. And that the children of church members are to be considered in this light till they either become members of the church or prove themselves unworthy of its care by wicked conduct, we conclude, first, from the law of nature, secondly, from exhortations and directions given in the gospel of Christ to this import. Man was originally designed for a religious and social creature, and the law of his nature placed him after the first formation of species, under the protection and guardianship of his parents during his minority, so that by the divine constitution, the parent is his guardian and director in religion, as well as in other concerns, at least during a certain term of life. And as the obligations to religion are mutual, the parent is bound to give and the child to receive instruction and to make use of means God has appointed for the end and also to be of the religion of the parent, unless sufficient evidence is furnished that such religion is wrong. Nor has the fall of man destroyed these obligations or reversed the order of the divine plan, though it must be confessed it has greatly disqualified men from being instructors, and by its unfavorable influence on the moral powers, 
unfitted the instructed for properly obeying or improving their disadvantages. Duties so important and specially connected with one of the most near and universal relations among men must also involve general concern of society, and accordingly, have ever engaged the most serious attention of wise legislators and civilized nations. But they must more immediately engage the attention of religious society. To the church of God, therefore, where society is brought to its most refined, noble state on earth, which is particularly formed to promote the great interests of religion and qualified by special grace to answer important purpose, this duty to disciple children must apply with peculiar force. Accordingly, we find the gospel of Christ inculcating the duty of, quote-unquote, bringing up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord in Ephesians 6.4, with particular directions both to parents and children respecting it. Those directions are contained in epistles addressed to churches and public ministers of the gospel, who appear to be strictly charged with the observance of them and are greatly recommended to us in the attention shown to the persons and interests of children by our blessed Lord himself, who received them graciously when brought to him and gently rebuked his disciples when they would have prevented them with this observation in Matthew 19, 14, quote, unquote, let little children to come unto me and forbid them not for of such is the kingdom of God. Though these words appear originally to have particularly respected the bringing of children to Christ personally and in bodily sense, there also appears to be no impropriety in understanding them with respect to all the means of grace proper to their state and character. But if this sense is admitted, it must be with the limitation proposed. For if the permission to come to Jesus is wrongly understood to include an approach to him by all means indefinitely, then the necessity of rational qualification is laid aside. Distinctions clearly made in other passages of Scripture are rendered meaningless, and a right for these little children's admission to the Lord's Supper is as firmly established as to baptism, the thing ordinarily contended to any other ordinance. Having thus answered the inquiry as it respects the relation of children to the church, we proceed to consider what is most advisable with respect to the performance of the duties connected with and dependent on that relation as comprehended in the second part of the inquiry. There are two kinds, such as properly belong to the church as a body and such as pertain to parents in their private or individual capacity. The guardianship of the church is properly exercised in seeing that the parents attend to their duty individually as Christians and that the children are properly regarded by the public ministry and brought to attend public worship by the members of the church in general showing a tender and affectionate regard for them and taking every proper measure both by word and example to convince them of the reality and excellence of religion, but especially by praying earnestly with and for them. Private and public catechizing, in which care is not only taken to teach them a form of sound words, but to lead them into the sense spirit of the Christian doctrine, 
has been and probably ever will be great use, especially if united with friendly, familiar discourse on the subject of religion, both by members and minister, whenever suitable opportunities offer. But the principal part of this inquiry respects the instruction and conduct of the parents and immediate instructors themselves in their personal capacity. The care of the young and tender mind should begin at the first dawn of their reasoning. The first thing, or one of the first, should be to establish parental authority and to unite with it a becoming mildness and tenderness, which should pervade the whole temper and conduct of the instructor, that is the parent. To govern by consent is the best method of exercising power in all kinds of government, where the consent can be obtained to what is right and laudable. This, therefore, is an important matter, and a great deal depends on the conduct of the parent for obtaining it. Our attention should be seriously fixed on ourselves, and endeavors used to obtain such command of our emotions and passions so that conduct toward the tender offspring of our bodies might be ever under the influence of wisdom, prudence, and the fear of God. To lead them in the knowledge and practice of true religion and virtues, we must enter into the spirit of these great subjects ourselves. This gives consistency and energy to the parent's instructions and a sacredness to his authority, which makes it respected. Inconsistency is easily discovered, even by the simple, and no mechanical conduct will answer the purpose on this occasion. A stern use of authority may produce a slavish fear, a distant respect, and reluctant submission. And effeminate tenderness and indulgence may meet with some return of similar affection. But it is only the parenting we have described above that can gain the heart and influence the life in the pursuits which are truly noble and virtuous. In the young years, it may be best to conduct the upbringing of a child without much reasoning with them. But in a more advanced period, it is certainly necessary to address their understanding and their conscience. It should be a settled point never to indulge a perverse humor in your child. Its gratification should be positively denied, and the denial persisted in until your child yields. Then forgiveness and tenderness may be shown. Indulgences are so far from removing the cause of uneasiness in such cases that they increase it. However, therefore, our tender feelings may, through weakness, dictate a different conduct. This is what true and rational love will point out. A parent should not suffer himself to be trifled with by a child, to be contradicted or spoken to irreverently. Such behavior should be checked in the beginning by such remarks of disapprobation as are sufficient to prevent it. But it will ever be a matter of wisdom to proportion your reproof or correction to the nature and degree of the offense of the child. What is purely the effect of a child's weakness and inadvertence should be viewed with tenderness and is better to view some things as though they were not seen. Be particularly careful not to laugh at a child's fault, especially in connection with reproof. 
Begin as you have opportunity early with their education, and let it be a particular object to furnish their minds with useful knowledge. Those parents who have wealth sufficient should consider themselves bound in duty to give their children a broad or liberal education, but the capacity and genius of the child should be consulted, and there should be ever held up to him a view of some useful, industrious course of life to be pursued. The lofty idea of being fine gentlemen and ladies in a course of indolence and indulgence, and which is often inculcated in their infancy and youth, has ruined thousands, both as to soul and body, those who seem to be born to stations of eminence and usefulness in the world, many examples which are to be found all around us. By receiving education, children are fitted for usefulness both in church and state, should God be pleased to bless them with the smiles of his grace and providence. And when it is obtained with such views as we have recommended, there is every reason to hope for the best. However, the absurd prejudices against education may influence the minds of some in our Baptist denomination. We hope there are none so lost to a true sense of duty and advantage among the churches in this connection. We shall therefore pass over in silence the arguments by which such sentiments are confuted and exposed. Children should never be threatened to be sent to school as a place of punishment. But whatever relates to their education should be considered, as it is, their privilege and honor. As they advance in life, a free and friendly manner of speaking with them where their conduct in such conversation is marked with respect and propriety, becomes proper. Nor do we think they should be rigorously restrained from amusements when used for relaxation and proper occasions. Some young minds are frightened from the thoughts of becoming Christian and are frightened from the company of those who profess to be Christians, where a universal gloom appears to be spread over them and innocent amusements are denied among them. But we are also very sensible that many amusements pass for innocent among the bulk of mankind, which are in fact not so, and have a very pernicious or deadly tendency on the morals and life of those who use them. Such amusements should be carefully avoided and their evil nature pointed out with serious attention. These things are comprehended in the general scheme of a religion and useful education. But what respects the salvation of the soul and the advancement of our Lord's kingdom more immediately claim our attention? The parent, the church, with all religious friends and instructors, therefore, should insist in the most positive manner on the necessity of conversion, an interest in Christ, and a self-denied holy life with all the correspondent doctrines of the gospel. These should be seriously and frequently urged, in a manner most likely to captivate and affect the heart, and reading the scriptures, private prayer, and meditation should be earnestly recommended. The importance of the gospel should also be inculcated, and a child should be taught, in good time, to look around and consider what methods are made use of by grace and providence to advance the interests of the Christian religion together with the obligations we are under to use our best endeavors for accomplishing that important end.
As regular worship ought to be supported in every family, so care should be taken that constant and respectful attendance be given by the children, and in equal care, that they attend public worship in the church and carefully observe the Sabbath. An attention to the public interests of religion, humanity, and benevolence may be greatly promoted by setting before them the amiable nature of public spiritedness, generosity, and compassion, and then putting it in their power, as far as the parents' ability will permit, to contribute something to the support of the ministry, the relief of the poor, and the forwarding of any scheme of benevolence and usefulness. Habits are easily acquired in early life, and such as these must have a happy influence on the temper and conduct. To those who are covetous, such directions will no doubt be unwelcome, and such persons as never contribute anything of their substance themselves to the support of the ministry or other public and benevolent uses will hardly encourage it in their children. But such greedy people should consider that persons of their character are not fit to be parents and are really unworthy of the Christian name or a place in the church of God. One of the first lessons which should be insisted on after children arrive at the state when reason gains its empire in the human breast is the necessity of inquiring after truth and of subjecting their understanding and conscience to God alone. This will lead them into inquiries concerning the truth and propriety of the religious principles in which they've been educated, as well as to take a view of the sentiments professed by others, and all for this grand design, that their faith may not stand in the counsel of men, but in the word of God, and that they may call no man master on earth, in this sense, but be subjects to Christ alone. Where this important business is properly performed, it may be expected the principles adopted will be permanent and the Christian profession consequent on them consistent and becoming. But as many mistakes and dangers are incident to the understanding, too much caution cannot be used by the public ministry, by parents, and all who are concerned as religious guardians or assistants to the youthful mind. They should be warned. One, while they exercise a freedom of thought and inquiry, not to make it a mere matter of speculation, but to make it an honest inquiry after truth and duty. They should be warned, too, that they guard against infidelity and skepticism. And three, that no motives to worldly honor or advantage influence them in their choice to the prejudice of the pure principles or practice of religion that though it becomes their duty to make this kind of free inquiry as rational agents, personally accountable to God and under sacred obligations to embrace and adhere to truth when clearly discovered, whatever change it may make with respect to either to sentiment or profession, yet they're also under obligations to pay a respectful attention in the first place to the church which by the course of providence has been the guardian of their tender years, and to the principles they have been taught according to that general law of nature which we have considered previously and the direction of holy writ, and that they are not at liberty to desert them, but 
only on the clear conviction that their duty to God requires it on account of error either in sentiment or practice. Among the various considerations which naturally employ the mind on this subject, what follows claims particular attention. That as the holy religion of Jesus is a self-denied course of life, it is not only necessary we be determined to take up our cross and follow Christ daily, but we also need the gracious influence of the Holy Spirit to enlighten our understandings, to discern divine truth in its proper light, and dispose our hearts cordially to embrace and adhere to it. It should be urged accordingly. Where any religious denomination is less numerous or affluent or honorable in the common judgment of men than other denominations they are conversant with, it may be expected that such growing children as have not virtue or greatness of soul sufficient to adhere to truth and goodness in adversity, it may be expected that such will be drawn over to the connection where worldly advantages invite. This has been greatly the case of the Baptist churches in many parts of this country, though it is not confined to them. And many of those who were expected by their pious parents to succeed them in their places in their church are now found among other denominations, where it is to be feared the purest motives have not carried them. From the knowledge we have of the danger and force of these temptations, we should be the more careful to fortify the unexperienced mind against them. Our youth should be furnished with the means of ample information respecting our essential doctrines and denominating principles, and the fallacy of those arguments on which the popular prejudices and reproaches are founded, which have been often made use of to injure the cause we are engaged in and which we have reason to consider as the cause of Christ, these popular prejudices and reproaches should be exposed. The contemptible conduct of those children who have deserted truth and duty for worldly advantages should be laid open and rendered unthinkable in their view as it really is however we may be tender of their persons, those who have deserted. And the love of disinterested virtue and generous conduct should be cultivated by every engaging motive. The importance of marriage to human life makes it a subject of paternal concern. And while our children are cautioned to avoid connection in that intimate union with the vicious, the profane, the indolent, and the despicable, it may not be amiss to point out the peculiar advantage of being united with those who have the same denominational sentiments in religion. Some trying difficulties are apt to arise where the greatest prudence and liberality are exercised between those of different sentiments when united in that marital relation. But where these are lacking, the life of a person who has regard for religion is rendered miserable. Should such marriages therefore be admitted, the free and unrestrained exercise of religious liberty should ever be secured by previous agreement before marriage, and with such whose truth and known liberality may be relied on. Though we have already mentioned the importance of uniting with the church and submitting to the public ordinances, 
we cannot leave off adding here that where there is any just reason to believe religion has exerted its sacred influence on the heart of a child, that every encouragement should be given both by the parents and the church for its coming to the holy ordinances and for making a religious profession its first deliberate and public act, that it may truly, quote unquote, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. It has appeared by the best evidence the nature of the subject admits that divine grace has frequently produced the conversion of children even when they are very young, and when they are thus brought up under the religious care of both their parents and the church, it may be rationally expected the blessing of this divine grace of conversion will be frequently afforded. And it may be justly concluded that the conversion of such young children may not appear visible in its operation as is the case in one who has grown up in a neglect of religion and is recovered from the power of scandalous vice. The conversion of younger children should, therefore, be sought for as hid treasure, that its reality may appear to the church and its excellency to the world. Some young minds, as well as others, who have experienced grace are kept back through diffidence and others are deceived concerning religious profession and submission to ordinances under the idea that these things do not become their duty until they receive a particular impulse to discover or prove it to them. But they should remember, it is the appointment of God and not their feelings which makes the duty. And as long as it is not complied with, they are guilty of disobedience to the divine command. This view of things may motivate the neglectful to a diligent use of the means of grace, that they may be found in the way of their duty, and encouragement should be given to the doubting to embrace the privileges they are entitled to. Thus, beloved brethren, we have laid before you a plan respecting the relationship and education of children, which appears to us to be consonant to the great law of nature and the gospel of Christ. By pursuing this, we shall, on the one hand, avoid what appears to us to be an abuse of holy ordinances, and on the other, secure every blessing and privilege in our power for the benefit of our children. The spiritual, free, and rational nature of the gospel worship will be held up to view in our churches and generous, dignified sentiments inculcated in the minds of our members and their offspring. By a proper attendance to these duties, it is hoped we shall be placed in the way of receiving abundant and substantial blessings, of having some of the most tender feelings of the heart gratified to the highest degree in the spiritual happiness and true honor of our children, and of having the cause of God and the honor of our Redeemer promoted by them in His church when we are gone to render our account to the judge of all the earth. Such a view of things cannot, we hope, fail to motivate your most vigorous endeavors to secure the important end proposed. We remain, beloved brethren, yours in gospel bonds. Richard Furman.